Would you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of 1 John? This morning in Bible Hour, we read through the entire letter of 1 John. And this morning, I'd like for us to take some time to look particularly in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. We find in this chapter a command to love, to love other believers. And in this chapter, we're given a tall order. But what's important for us to recognize and know that also in this chapter, we not only are given commands, but we are shown how we can love. What makes it possible for us to love? There's also a question, a dilemma that I'd like to address. Oftentimes, we teach our children to forgive. We admonish one another to forgive. Have you ever found that hard? I have. Have you ever found it, in some ways, hard for good reason? And you might say, what? No, now you're starting to sound like a teenager. No, sometimes teenagers are more honest than the rest of us. Hard to forgive for good reason. I couldn't forgive that. That's unforgivable. That has to be paid for. If I forgive, where is justice? Can I submit to you? Those aren't just objections of some rebellious troublemaker. Those are legitimate questions asked by human beings, and they're questions we ask, I believe, because we are created in the image of God. And as creatures created in the image of God, we, just like God, have a sense of justice. We have a sense of right and wrong. We have a sense of justice in that that which is wrong must be dealt with. But then we read throughout the scriptures of love. We read throughout the scriptures of forgiveness. We sing the glorious song that we sang just earlier in God's providences in the song hymn schedule of the wonderful grace of Jesus. Do these concepts of love, forgiveness, grace, ignore justice? Is justice ignored in forgiveness? Is justice ignored in love? When we talk about grace, is there any justice too? 
I don't know how much experience you have with different people dealing with some of the theological truths in the Bible. I'm a pastor, so sometimes people dump them on me. I've had many a people tell me of, and give me lists of certain evils, crimes that are unforgivable, unpardonable. There is no forgiveness possible, even by God, for these kinds of things. Are they right? I'll be candid with you. You know, for a long time, I've believed in forgiveness. I have believed in righteousness. But sometime, I'm exposed to evil where I myself question, can God really forgive that? Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, you're the pastor. You ask those same questions? Yeah, I do. And I thank God for a wonderful wife who when I broke down and had trouble accepting the truth of God's forgiveness and grace, said, honey, just go read your Bible. That's why this morning I wanted us to read 1 John. Because I found renewing of my mind in 1 John. And I was reminded of a profound spiritual truth. The tension between justice And mercy. Can they come together? How do they come together? They seem to be in polar opposites of each other. But can justice and mercy, can justice and forgiveness come together? Sometimes when we forgive, we think of little children say you're sorry, and we instruct our children to say you're sorry. And, and that's not wrong. But yet, you ever seen a child who sits back and says, I'm not saying sorry. He broke my toy, and there's no way to fix it. And we kind of sit back as parents and we see that little child and, and we think, well, let it go. It was just a toy. This is a difficult one because that little child is dealing with just a toy that was broken, that was lost. And you see that image of God in that child asking and saying, it has to be paid for. It has to be dealt with. Where is the justice? 
I myself have been thinking through. How am I teaching my children? Do I just say, well, say you're sorry? Is that really justice? Is it? The toy's still broken. Saying sorry doesn't fix that fact. The toy's still broken. How, when, where is the justice? We'll come back to answer that question. Because the answer for that little child about that broken toy is the same as the answer for the one who has heinously murdered another human being. Can there be forgiveness? Can there be forgiveness that is righteous? Can there be forgiveness that is just? Can we just, is it possible, is it right to just overlook sin, to overlook unrighteousness, to flippantly say, well, I'm sorry, and then expect to be forgiven? Where is justice? What is justice? We read of love. How can we love? We read and find in the, in the Gospels or in, in the epistles of Paul commands of forgiveness and commands of love, citing Jesus, citing God as the examples of these things. And then I wonder, how can we forgive? How can we forgive justly? How can we justly show love? I think of the Apostle Paul, whom God used to and inspired to record for us many truths of Scripture. In fact, we're going to turn to some of them here later in the book of Romans. Saul of Tarshish, a man who was described as one breathing out threatenings of the church, bringing them into bondage and even overseeing the murder of one of the first deacons of Christ's church. How could Saul of Tarshish be forgiven? How could such a man be forgiven? How can forgiveness be given while maintaining justice? Well, the answer is found in an interesting word we find in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4, and Romans chapter 3. It's a word, and it's summarized in a word. And I'll be blunt, it's not a word we use very often in our vocabulary. And it's very likely that you have never used the word apart from quoting the Bible. I think we maybe need to change that. Because when that little child is there demanding justice for the broken toy. Now, don't misunderstand me. You might think, whoa, what a crazy parent. But maybe we need to sit down with that child and share with them that the broken toy and all the justice needed has already been propitiated. You think, whoa. How do you explain that to a child this big? You're right, you don't. You don't maybe use the big word. But I think that in all of our lives, we need to begin to use and to recognize the concept, the concept of propitiation. What is propitiation? 
Let's look at it here, described in 1 John. 1 John is being written and some commands are being given to love. And let me give you a warning. Love and justice have to work together. And the only way for love and justice to work together is for propitiation to be in the mix. Look with me, John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Let me make just a few notes about love. Love that is real love is of God. If God's not in it, it ain't love. Love must, true love, must have God in it, for God is love, and love is of God. Verse 8, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. How could God love a sinful people? How could God love a wicked people? How could He? Where is the justice in that? We learn of the attributes of God, and it's very important for us to understand and know that one of God's attributes is that He is just. That means He stands for what is for justice. He defends justice. He is just. But we just also read He is love. And so how does, love, how does a just God, a righteous God, love sinful man? In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. You see, our sin, your sin, my sin, and the sins of the entire world, all of us, for all have sinned, our sin brings judgment. Our sin deserves justice. And the scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. Justice demands that because of our sins, we die. But God loves us. May I share with you a concern I have with American Christianity? We talk an awful lot about love, and we talk an awful lot about grace. And we cheapen that because we don't recognize what justice demanded to be done for love and grace to be real. And I'm not talking about just those other churches. All of us cannot cheapen love cannot cheapen grace. Every one of us, in order to understand grace, in order to understand love, in order to receive it, must understand justice. 
and what had to be done so that God could righteously and could justly forgive us so that he could, without, in satisfying justice, show love to us. In satisfying justice, let us live. His love was manifest. In this was manifest the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. You see, his love brings life and it comes through Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. So when he was sent into the world, does that mean that he was just sent into the world to come and to sit next to the sinners and say, it's okay. I forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done. I forgive you. And I'm God, so I can do that. Would that be just? Oh, that would not be just. That would not be just. Look at verse 10. 1 John 4, verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Now, that's saying a whole lot more than what it's saying. Well, I don't want to exaggerate it, but when you take a lot of other scriptures into play, what's being stated here is not just that we don't love God and that he loves us. In fact, if we were to go to Romans chapter 3 and other passages, we would find out that as sinful people, we are not loving God, we are hating God. And in our disobedience against him, we are making ourselves his enemy. And as his enemy, he loves us. As a people who show him no love, who do not love him, he loves us. I hope you've memorized Romans 5.12, where it says, but God commendeth, he demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners... There's the parallel to this. Here it describes those who loved not God. There in Romans 3.12, it says that we were yet sinners. There in Romans 3.12, it says that he commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look here in 1 John. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, in order for God to love us as a sinful people, in order for God to love us when we didn't love Him, in order for God to love us even though we are His actual enemies, there had to be propitiation. What is propitiation? A simple definition of propitiation is this. In a theological Christian perspective, propitiation is Jesus' sacrifice 
on the cross removes God's wrath from us because of our sin so that we can be forgiven. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross removes God's wrath for sin. You see, God is not just a God of love. He is a God of wrath. Now, your ears may tingle when you hear that. It is taught all through the Scriptures. He is just and He is loving. He has a wrath for the ungodly, and He is the justifier of the ungodly. How does this work? How can this work? It has to do with this propitiation. Propitiation is that when Jesus came to earth as described here, he became one of us. God himself became one of us. He became a man. But he was different than all of us in that he was perfect, in that he was sinless, in that he had committed no sin. He was also different than all of us in the sense that he was also still God and infinite. And though he was without sin, he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for my sin. And because he is infinite, he was able to infinitely apply it to all mankind. My sins, he died for. Your sins, he died for. And the sins of the entire world. And I'm telling you, when it says the entire world, it says the entire world. I'm not making that up. Look over in 1 John chapter 2, where it's actually writing, being written to Christians, and, and is telling them, don't sin. <laughs> you don't have to sin. But if you do, remember this truth. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate, we have a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, though He had no sin, gave his life as a sacrifice, as a payment, to pay the penalty for sin. Imagine yourself in a courtroom. You're the defendant. You have a prosecuting attorney. You have a defense attorney. And God himself is the judge. There's no real need to prove much. The prosecuting attorney is the law. And um, I'll just note you, we have an adversary who likes to prod it and make sure to get every single little point in detail noted. And newsflash, we're guilty. In fact, if we were to look back at Romans chapter 3, 
it makes a description and speaks of the fact that now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We have no defense. The charges could be read against us, detailed and detailed. Why, it would take a long time to list all the charges against me. And they're all listed. Not just what the prosecution thinks they can convict me for. For the judge knows everything. There's nothing I can hide from him. Nothing. Everything is known by him. And the charges would go on and on and on. And as each charge would be read against me, I could say and I could plead nothing but guilty. In fact, every mouth stopped, I probably would just but stand there with my head hung in guilt. All through it. And the judge would find me guilty of all. Every one of us need to picture ourselves in this reality. Picture ourselves and understand and see ourselves standing before God and the charges listed against us. And we find ourselves guilty, 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 guilty. And then as we stand before that judge, the judge of all the earth who knows everything, who is perfect, righteous, and just, finds us guilty. And you know what the sentence is? Death. You say, ah, my lies aren't that bad. They're just white lies. Ah, my words, my attitude, it ain't that bad. No, no. Death. For count one, two, three, and however many there are, God knows them all. It is death. 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 My friends, if you stand before God, you will be found guilty without propitiation. You will be sentenced to death, and not just physical death, but everlasting death in the lake of fire. Every one of us deserve to go to the lake of fire. Every single one of us deserve to spend eternity in such a penitentiary. It's what we deserve. And if we stand before God with only our righteousnesses and only our sins, our righteousnesses will be found as filthy rags and our sins will condemn us to eternity in the lake of fire. That is justice. That is right. And if we don't understand that truth, we won't understand grace. We won't understand mercy. We won't understand love. But let me tell you something. When you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, what happens is, is that you get a defense attorney. 
And when the sentence is against you, your defense attorney is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he steps up to that judge and says, my client is guilty, but really we're not clients. My friend, my joint heir is guilty, but I died for him. I already paid all the penalties for this one. And so you today can forgive all of the charges against him because I, Jesus Christ, have already paid them all. That's propitiation. Propitiation is the fact that one has paid, one has satisfied, one has appeased justice. Forgiveness and mercy and love do not ignore justice. True forgiveness, true mercy, and true love upholds justice. And the only way that you or I or anyone, no matter how little your sins are or how big your sins are, can receive any mercy is only through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for sin. It's the only way. Now do you see why grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love are so rich? It's not some flippant, I'm sorry, I forgive you. Oh, no. It wasn't just an exchange of, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I forgive you, like we might see little children do or sometimes encourage. But a recognition of the true horror of guilt. An acknowledgement of it in humility to receive the grace and to receive the mercy, to receive the forgiveness and to receive the love. We're all guilty. And we all rejoice and sing, wonderful grace of Jesus. Oh, I'm not giving this here today to tell you to have a guilt-down demeanor. I'm sharing this for you today for the grace of God to be richer in your eyes, to be greater in your eyes, for you to truly, really understand how great God's mercy and love and forgiveness is. It's great because our sin is great. It is great because Jesus paid it all. Amen. He paid it all. And that's why we can receive forgiveness. Forgiveness that is just. It's just. It's real. You might be struggling with one who has done wrong against you this morning, and you say, oh, no, God could never forgive that. God could never forgive that person. And if he did, it would be unjust because that was a crime against me. 
that person stole the life of my dearest friend. God can't forgive them because it's not just against God, it was against me. How can you answer that question? Can we answer that question? Yes, we can. The reason why God can forgive is because the crime was paid for. Jesus paid for it. Jesus died for that murderer. Jesus died for that one who did you wrong. You can forgive applying the propitiation of Jesus Christ in every situation. Really, the truth is, that's the only way we can forgive. Justice has to be met. Justice has to be served. This is taught for us over in Ephesians. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, or chapter 4, we are commanded as Christians to forgive. And in this chapter, we find, in, in this verse, we find propitiation. We find propitiation. You might be sitting here this morning struggling with forgiving someone, or you may be in a situation of counseling someone who needs to forgive someone. How do you answer those questions, your own questions or the other questions, when there is this sense of justice? How do you answer that? How can someone truly forgive? Let's look at a command we are given to forgive. Look here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We find here that this is being addressed to Christian people, Christian people who have the Spirit of God living inside of them, which is the seal of their resurrection, guarantee of life. Redemption those who have been redeemed. Now a command. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These are the kinds of things that we normally have when we have been done wrong. Right? Can I, can I pick on the little child? Because we, all, you know, we always will overlook that little child we're talking about whose toy was broken? You ever seen, seen a little child whose toy is broken? You sometimes see that bitterness, you sometimes see wrath, you sometimes see anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice. You know, sometimes we see it more readily in children and we are ready to overlook it. Uh, we maybe shouldn't be, but nonetheless, we, we can overlook it oftentimes in a little child. But you see it there. And we tell that child, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And what's that child say? I can't broke my toy. I can't can't be fixed. And may say other things that I wouldn't want to repeat. Evil speakings. Little one. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. If this passage stopped right there, hmm, 
justice wouldn't be served. Because the toy wasn't paid for. The offense hasn't been made right. How does even the little child forgive? Look at the last phrase of Ephesians 4.32. Even as God, key phrase, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You see, when we're teaching those little children and they're beginning to come to understanding of life and of righteousness, of justice, even in that little spat about a broken toy, we can share the gospel. And for a moment, let's assume that this little one has received the gospel, has received the forgiveness of Christ. We share with them. Remember the times, all the times you've done wrong? God forgive you. Why did God forgive you? Why did he forgive you? Why could he forgive you? You know, I'm going to get real personal as a daddy. You never paid for mommy's lost night of sleep when you were stubborn and made her life miserable three weeks ago. How do you pay somebody back for a lost night of sleep because you were just a total stubborn troublemaker? And I understand children, I'm not, I understand children have legitimate reasons for, for that, for giving their mothers trouble sometimes, but sometimes they don't. Who paid for that? Who pays for that? How can you pay for that? It's paid for for Christ's sake. It's for Christ's sake. You see, this passage here is saying it with different words, but it is describing propitiation. It is saying that you can, even though when you have been wronged, you don't have to be bitter. You don't have to have evil speakings. You don't have to have wrath. You don't have to have malice. You don't have to have anger. Instead, you can be kind, and you can be tenderhearted, and you can even forgive, and you can forgive righteously and justly and acknowledging that justice is real. When for a moment you propitiate Jesus Christ in that offense, and you think and meditate upon the tender shepherd who was mutilated, tortured, crucified, and died. Even for the broken toy, as well as for the murder. He died for the smallest offense to the greatest offense. As 1 John 2 says, for the sins of the whole world. This is the gospel. This is how we are only able, why it's presented to us in 1 John 4, which is all about showing love one to another. It's the only way for us to show love. We can't do it otherwise unless we are daily and consistently propitiating the death of Jesus Christ, 
in the situation and offenses in which we must deal with, we will not have success in being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. It is for Christ's sake that we are able to do those things. I've spent a lot of time focusing on the extremes, you know, the little child. Some of you might have trouble with that. Um, I actually recently had a conversation with an actual judge who objected to some things that I had said about justice, about propitiation. And his objection was basically this. There are good people and there are evil people. But most people are good. And basically his just was is that there's nothing, nothing for the evil people. They're just evil people. And for the rest of us, we're mostly good. And again, he implied, there's no need for anything for that either. No. The little one who is known by his doings, yes, where that age comes of accountability, of the knowledge of good and evil varies. I acknowledge that. But it comes. And when it comes, it is just as true across the spectrum. Christ's propitiation is needed for the smallest bite of a piece of fruit in the Garden of Eden as it is for the heinous crimes committed by Nazis. The propitiation is needed in every situation. And it's been fulfilled. Jesus has paid it all. He has paid the price so that all of us can be forgiven. So that all of us can also forgive. When you have trouble forgiving others, or even yourself, remember propitiation. Jesus' propitiation. And you will find that the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God and all there is included in that and beyond that is rich. And it is great. And it is wonderful. And you can sing and you can praise. But I beg you, don't just brush it off. For us to understand truly again all the beauty of God's grace and love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, we must understand that all of that is given and offered with justice truly satisfied. And all that has happened in this word, propitiation. Jesus' sacrifice for sin removes God's wrath so that he can justly, righteously, honorably, legitimately forgive and show great love. This morning, I beseech you to face justice, to acknowledge the truth, of who we are, 
without Jesus. If you don't have Jesus this morning, you stand condemned with no hope. But Jesus is standing right there. I don't want to use the word client because that carries the idea of being paid. Jesus don't get paid. His services are free. But he's, he's standing right there ready to be your advocate, which is a better word than, you know, the, the client. To be your advocate. He's, he's done all that's required. If you but trust in him, believe that you're truly condemned and need him, he'll come alongside so that you can receive justice and mercy. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us, and thou shalt be saved. Trust in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 is all about propitiation in that little word gave. That's propitiation. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Will you not perish, but have everlasting life? If this morning you haven't, humble yourself before God, the judge of all the earth, and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and his mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, and life. Many of you, I know, already have received his forgiveness. But sometimes we live through life and we are threatened. We have an adversary, the devil, who attacks us and knocks us down and guilts us all day long, all the time. Walk in freedom, believing in the one who is your propitiation. Meditate upon that reality and live in that reality day by day. Consider him. Consider his sacrifice for you. And walk praising him going forth. So praise him. If you don't have Jesus, believe in him. If you have Jesus, praise him. If you have Jesus and you're having trouble forgiving someone, propitiate Jesus in that transaction. You may be objecting. I have. He don't deserve it. That's not your call. Jesus propitiated. He sacrificed his own life so that that one could be forgiven. You can't forgive him, and you're right. May I say that? And may I say that to the little child? You're right. It does have to be paid for. And you're, you know Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for it. And for Christ's sake, forgive. Gracious God, we give thanks to you that you are gracious, that you are good, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to be our propitiation. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you as we behold you dying upon the cross. We see that that's where we belong or deserve to be, but that you are there in our place. But Lord Jesus, as I think even now of you on the cross, I think of you now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ever making intercession for us, knowing that you arose, you live, you died for our offense, but you lived for our life. We praise you for it. 
we praise you and give thanks to you that through you we have life. Through you we need not perish but have everlasting life. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We give thanks. We long for the day when we can be with you in your very presence. But Lord, there are situations in our lives in which we need to forgive. Lord Jesus, I pray that for your sake we would forgive. That your sacrifice would be propitiated in these transactions in which it needs to be paid for and in many, many, many cases it can't be paid for. There's nothing that can pay for it except you. Your death, your sacrifice, you as infinite God and man giving your life. And so for your sake, may we forgive. May we be kind. May we be tender-hearted. We need you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to continue on having the right view of justice and in, con and in balance with your mercy, love, and grace. We worship you this morning and we praise you for your goodness. We need you every hour. Draw us nearer, for indeed wonderful is your matchless grace. We worship you this morning as we pray in your name. Amen.